Lord, we do ask you now to comfort us. Comfort us with your son. Comfort us. We confess and praise you as the God who raises the dead. Be with us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we started a sermon series through the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul opened his letter to the Corinthians by praising the God of all comfort, who Paul said comforted him in all his afflictions. And then Paul said, and my hope is unshaken. I am confident that you will share in this comfort too. But for many readers, Paul's confidence rings hollow. They would say to Paul, that's all well and good for you, but... That isn't my experience. Maybe that's you here today. Maybe Paul's praise in verse 3 rings hollow to you. God may have delivered you, Paul, but he hasn't delivered me. He hasn't delivered me from my afflictions. My wife still has cancer. My husband still left me. My kid still hates me. I still can't find work. I'm still going to lose my home. What does it mean to call God the God of all comfort if he isn't comforting me? If I am still afflicted even after I pray for relief? I listened to the Old Testament reading this morning. Yeah, Jeremiah was delivered, but there was a second faithful prophet. The king pursued Uriah out of the country, dragged him back, and struck him down. I'm Uriah. That's why the prosperity gospel, the message that Jesus just wants you to be healthy and happy, and if you pray enough and trust enough, you will know prosperity. That prosperity gospel ultimately loses traction without any argument. You don't need to argue the falseness of the prosperity gospel. You just have to wait. The prosperity gospel will eventually fold to time. It just doesn't work. Once you start suffering and God doesn't rescue You from it, despite your pleas, the prosperity gospel crumbles. So if you understand Paul to be saying something like, if you just trust God enough, he will rescue you out of your affliction so that you will suffer no more, you're going to make shipwreck of your faith. If you understand Paul in last week's passage to be saying, God took away all my afflictions and so too he will take away all of yours if you trust him. If it hasn't already, someday something will happen that will make you a bitter cynic towards Paul and his God of all comfort. But Paul is not saying, if you trust God enough, he will rescue you out of your affliction so that you will suffer no more. We know that's not what Paul meant. Two reasons. Number one, we know that was not Paul's experience. In this very same letter, Paul will mention mention an affliction that he cryptically calls a a thorn in his flesh, that he begs God to remove. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord, and God denies the request each time. So that wasn't Paul's experience. But number two, more fundamentally, we saw last time in verse 5 that the comfort Paul is thinking about comes through Christ, which as we briefly discussed is a, a loaded Pauline term. That was Paul's way of saying the comfort comes through the truth of the gospel. The comfort comes from believing the gospel and viewing your experiences in light of the gospel. Not that the comfort comes ultimately through a specific deliverance, though specific acts of deliverance do come and play a role in the comfort. And our passage today is going to unpack all that. Stopping at verse 7 last week was was artificial. I was bad, maybe. 
Verses uh, 8 through 11 are very much an inseparable part of Paul's opening. This morning, Paul's going to put into action what he introduced in verses 3 through 7. So now I invite you to turn with me there to 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. I'll read it together for us. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Keep your Bible open. We're going to walk through these verses bit by bit. There is some very profound truth that is woven together in in very intricate ways, and so we want to keep our Bibles open so that we can look closely at these four verses. We'll just walk through step by step. First, we want to consider the relationship between these verses, our passage, and last week's passage. In verse 8, Paul says, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. In other words, I'm, I'm about to share a little bit of something of the suffering that my companions and I have personally been through. But verse 8 opens with a little connecting word. For, for we do not want you to be unaware. What is the logic that Paul is expressing? Why does he want to share a little bit about his own suffering? What does Paul's experience contribute to what he is doing in writing to the Corinthians? See, verse verse 8, it's grounding, it's it's explaining, it's providing a reason for what came before. Particularly in verse 7, Paul had just confidently declared, Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For, because we do not want you to be unaware. In other words, we have confidence that you are going to share in comfort, in our comfort, in part because of what I am about to share. And note, note, this is a little very specific, but note that Paul does not say, I am sure of your comfort for, and then relates an experience. No, what directly follows the for is not the experience, but Paul telling them that he's going to share an experience. Which I know that might sound confusing, but the, the, the point is, it is the act of telling that's, that's highlighted here, not the experience that gives assurance that they will share in his comfort. He's not saying, I've had this experience and it will be your experience, so let me share this experience. He's saying, I have something to tell you about my experience and that will comfort you. Paul is assured of their comfort because of his sharing of this experience. Why does that work? Why does not the experience, but Paul's sharing of the experience, guarantee the comfort of the Corinthians? It goes back to what Paul said in verse 4. God comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In other words, Paul is telling us with the 4 in verse 8 that he's about to fulfill verse 4. He's he's about to do verse 4. Paul is about to comfort them with the same comfort that he received, which, as we will see, is not a specific instance of deliverance. That's not the comfort that Paul has for them. 
If that were the case, it wouldn't be a comfort to anyone who doesn't also receive the same type of deliverance. The comfort Paul received was something that he could share. If you have cancer and you go into remission, it is not a comfort to tell another cancer patient, well, I have some comfort for you. God granted my prayers and my cancer went into remission, all while they're praying and not going into remission. But Paul says, I am sure of your comfort because I'm about to comfort you with the same comfort that I received. As we saw in verse 5, Paul very explicitly puts all the focus, not on any particular act of deliverance, but on the fact that divine comfort comes through Christ, which is to say Paul was comforted by the gospel, by the truth of who Jesus was and what he did for Paul and what he would do for Paul. Even specific acts of deliverance, which Paul did experience, many people experienced, to be truly divine comfort need to be viewed from a gospel perspective. If Paul didn't understand them that way, if he didn't understand the specific deliverances that he experienced, if he wasn't comforted through the gospel, through the work of Jesus, it wouldn't have been real comfort, or at least it wouldn't have been a comfort that he could share. As for every little help that comes to one person, there is other help that doesn't come to another person. But Paul himself makes clear he doesn't always get what he prays for, what he asks for. He isn't always delivered from what he wants to be delivered from. He knows, he writes elsewhere on more than one occasion, that he knows he will not escape death. So Paul needed a gospel perspective. The Corinthians needed a gospel perspective, which is why Paul adds verses 8 through 11. He's now doing to give them that perspective that he is now operating on the divine comfort that God provided to him. He's going to give it to them. In verse 5, he told them, comfort comes through Christ, through the gospel. Now he's going to show them the comfort. In verses 8 through 11, Paul's going to give the comfort, the comfort that comforts even when you don't get every relief that you ask for. Paul's going to give them the key that will help the Corinthians view all their afflictions and all their deliverances in light of the gospel and so be comforted through Christ. So let's unpack this. Let's unpack this comfort. Look back at the text. In verse 8, Paul says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. But then he does not tell them any of the details about the circumstances of those afflictions. He doesn't narrate what happened to him. He doesn't say anything about any specific external afflictions. In fact, commentators speculate, oh, what afflictions? They speculate because they don't know. A lot of people think what we read from Acts 19, oh, that Paul has that in mind. But there's a lot of bad stuff that happens in Asia, and and Acts is a very uh, truncated uh, account, meaning like it doesn't cover all of what happened in Paul's life. We we don't know what Paul has specifically in mind, or if it was a whole complex of things that happened that he had in mind. So for someone who wants us not to be unaware of the affliction he experienced in Asia, he's pretty mum about the affliction that he experienced in Asia. Now, maybe that could be because he assumes the Corinthians already know about his afflictions. But given how Paul continues, it's more likely that he doesn't tell them specific circumstances because what he does tell them is what is key. Paul learned a lesson in Asia, and it is the lesson, not the circumstances of the lesson, that is important. No one can say to Paul, well, well, you aren't in the same situation I am in, so your counsel is not valid. What is important is for you to learn the same lesson. 
Not, a, not important what these specific afflictions are. In this case, it is important how they affected Paul. That's where Paul puts the emphasis. Back to verse 8. We were four. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. What Paul wants you to know is that the afflictions were so bad that he despaired of life itself. That's, that's not hyperbole. Paul isn't being dramatic. Paul suffered so bad that he felt like he couldn't go on. Utterly burdened beyond our strength. Weighed down so that we could not take another step. And that R in the phrase our strength, that's not Paul and company's strength, right? That's human strength. Like Paul isn't saying it was beyond our strength personally, but I don't know, maybe someone else could have done it. That's clearly beyond what strength generically can do, period. Beyond any strength. We were so burdened. Paul was suffering so much that he nor anyone else could have mustered the strength to deal with the pain. He despaired of life itself. Man, Paul the apostle despaired of life. This means either that he wanted to die or he expected to die shortly. He couldn't imagine going on. The first part of verse 9 is an elaboration on that. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now, Paul isn't saying they were literally sentenced to death, like like he was in legal trouble. We know Paul had legal trouble at various points. Uh, But at this point in his life, he wasn't in prison. He wasn't under any sort of death penalty. The ESV is careful to reflect that Paul is mentioning a, a personal, subjective perspective. We felt, we felt like we were under the sentence of death. Paul's talking about something internal, the subjective experience of his sufferings. He felt like he was going to die, like death was the only future, the only prospect. Paul felt like a dead man. Paul felt hopeless. What would make Paul hopeless? Again, specifics aren't in view, but we can can certainly imagine Paul's discouragement, considering all the troubles that we do know that Paul experienced in Asia, in Ephesus, and throughout his ministry. It shouldn't be any surprise that he could be brought to this point. Maybe one rejection, one riot, one near-death experience finally brought Paul to the realization, this is how it's always going to be. People are just going to reject me and oppose me until I die, until they kill me or I die from exhaustion, spending my life on this. Nothing is going to change. This is my lot. You ever feel like that? Not just that your life is hard, but also that Nothing's going to change. That's an entirely different type of burden. It's one thing to suffer knowing it's going to end. You can help a friend lift a very heavy dresser to move. It might strain your muscles, hurt your shoulders and your arms, buckle your legs, but you can do it because you know you won't be carrying the weight for very long. But what about suffering while knowing it's never going to end? Being handed a weight that strains all your muscles and just told, hold that until you die. That's where Paul was in his afflictions. That's what you need to know about them. His afflictions made him hopeless. They were beyond human strength to bear. He despaired of life itself. From the perspective of his feelings, he had received a death sentence. A death sentence not from a human magistrate, not a Roman official, not a Jewish religious court. He'd received a death sentence from God. This is my life. Preach, rejection, suffer. Preach, rejection, suffer until I die. That's what Paul's suffering in Asia had brought him to. He despaired of life itself. 
But now look at the back half of verse 9. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. But that was. What was? That was. What is the that in this sentence? Paul's despairing of life. Paul's feeling of being a dead man. And that was too. That's a purpose statement. In other words, Paul's feelings weren't just Paul's feelings. They were something that was purpose, planned, enacted. Enacted by who? By God. God had a purpose for Paul's despair. God planned Paul's despair. God planned both the situation or situations that brought Paul to that place, and he planned for Paul to be in that place. It's not as if God ordained the events and then thought, oh no, I didn't realize that this would make you feel this way. I'm sorry. Paul emphasized in verses 8 through 9 the internal subjective sufferings of his afflictions. The subjective experience in response to that eternal affliction is what is in view. And that is what Paul is saying God purposed. God purposed for Paul to feel that way. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God was doing something in Paul's despair. God was teaching Paul not to put his hope in any particular outcome that Paul could imagine from his situation. God put Paul in a situation in which he felt there would be no good outcome so that Paul would rely on God. God was teaching Paul to trust God in all circumstances. And God's teaching Paul is how God comforted Paul. He comforted him by teaching him this. God wanted to transfer Paul's trust from Paul and everything Paul could conceive of himself doing in his own strength, transfer that over to God. And when that happened, that was comfort. Your afflictions are not accidents. Your cancer is not an accident. Your marital troubles are not an accident. Troubles at work, not an accident. Friction with your family, not an accident. Your pain and your afflictions are not unfortunate side effects of God's ordering of history. Those are, in part, the means to draw you, to help you to rely on God. They are meant to show you your own helplessness so that you will find your hope in the Lord. Now, many of us don't want to hear anything like that. That sounds like God is self-centered. Mean-spirited that he would purpose suffering for us in order to gain our trust, force our hand. That's who God is, then I don't want him. I don't want a God who would ordain affliction and mental anguish to draw me near him. He should just give me the freedom to make my own choices, not bring me into any suffering. Listen, God is not trying to bully you into a relationship with him. God would only be a bully if what he offered you wasn't what it was. What God is offering is so valuable that it's worth any anguish that you will get in order to get to it. The intolerable burden of our suffering becomes light by comparison with the weight of what God is giving. Paul says later in chapter 4, he expounds on this very idea using these very similar key words. He says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight, burden, same word, eternal burden of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. He deliberately uses the same language. Paul was burdened beyond strength, but God gives an eternal burden of glory beyond all comparison. What God gives is so glorious that the previous burden that Paul felt like he couldn't handle is described as a light, momentary affliction. 
What a change. You have to understand what God is doing in getting you to trade your self-reliance for God-reliance. You have to understand what he's doing. And the way you understand what God is doing is by understanding how. How did God invite Paul's confidence when Paul was despairing of self-reliance? What was it about God that invited this new confidence? We see, Paul tells us, it was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul could have just said, rely on God, but he specifically describes God as the one who raises the dead. That fact of who God is, is why the transfer of trust worked for Paul. How the comfort in affliction works. It's how the comfort that Paul is trying to give the Corinthians works, and thus how the comfort that God is giving to you this morning works. God's identity as the God who raises the dead is how divine comfort works. Paul's afflictions forced him to really reckon with the most fundamental truth of the gospel, to really apply it to his life. Who is God? He is the God who raises the dead. Literally. Literally raises the dead. God rewards his people. And that principal reward has always been, from Genesis to Proverbs to John, eternal life. Life that literally conquers death. Life that outlives death. God can and does provide that to his people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That is, whoever believes in Jesus will not be ultimately subject to death. As Paul elaborated on in 1 Corinthians, this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Jesus we have victory over death, over the most heinous of all enemies. Eternal life belongs to everyone who believes in Jesus because everyone who believes in Jesus participates in a great exchange. Paul's going to elaborate on this later in, first, in 2 Corinthians. We'll get to that more then. We know the basics. Jesus takes your sins and gives you his righteousness. He dies, takes the punishment you deserve, and you are credited as being as righteous as Christ and thus earning the reward for righteousness which is eternal life in perfect harmony with God. Death is a result of sin. So if sin is dealt with, death is necessarily dealt with. That's the logic of 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus was really raised means our sins were really dealt with. As Paul wrote in that chapter back in 1 Corinthians in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each to his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. 
For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Meaning Christ's resurrection was not just proof of his messiahship. Like it wasn't just proof that he was who he said he was. Like an unnecessary bonus. Christ's resurrection is the necessary overflow of his victory over sin. And since his victory over sin was victory over the sins of his people, thus Christ's resurrection was a preview of what is coming for those who believe in him. That's why Paul calls Christ's resurrection the first fruits. Because of Jesus' resurrection, there is going to be more resurrection to come. God put Paul in a place where no hope could be seen for this life so that Paul would hope for something transcending this life. Paul had to learn this. Even after believing in Christ on the road to Damascus so many years before, the risen Christ appeared to him. And Paul, uh, even after that, Paul says, I had to learn this. Paul, God had to teach me this. Even after we come to believe in Jesus, this is a lesson that we all must continually learn. Paul felt like a dead man, and so he had no choice but to look to God who literally raises dead men. Not just God can encourage Right? God can pat you on the back. God can help you through tough times. No, the point here, God literally raises the dead. Paul says his afflictions taught him to keep that ever in view. God raises dead men. That's who he is. And thus Paul's present hope is connected with his future hope. Look back at verse 10. Paul says, he delivered us from so great a death. The ESV has from such, uh, from such deadly peril. The NIV reads that way too if you're reading the NIV, which kind of makes it sound like Paul is talking about a particular situation, right? The situation that made him despair. And I'm not sure that's what Paul means. Holman Christian Standard Bible, New, or King James, others translate the phrase maybe more woodenly, but uh, he delivered us from so great a death. That's important because it is the same word here as in verse 9, from the sentence of death, Right? I was under the sentence, felt like I was under the sentence of death. He delivered us from so great a death, right? What death? Well, the only death Paul's been talking about so far is the sentence of death he felt, the death on the inside. Now, this could mean that God got Paul out of a really tough situation where it looked like he was going to die. But given that the comfort that Paul has in mind that he's trying to give comes through Christ, it's more likely that when Paul says God delivered us or delivers us from so great a death, his meaning is twofold. He's talking about capital D, death, not just any particular deadly situation, but death itself, and in doing so, from the subjective death that Paul felt, the hopelessness, the despair. When Paul says God delivered them from so great a death, he means God's delivered them from their despair and hopelessness by the hope of literal resurrection from the dead, won for them by Christ Jesus. God getting Paul to transfer his trust into the into trust for the hope for the future resurrection, the work of Jesus Christ was how God comforted Paul in his affliction. It was how he delivered him. That's how Paul could be afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, even struck down but not destroyed. God delivered Paul from despair by helping him to focus on unassailable hope. Unassailable hope. If you have cancer... Hope for remission is not unassailable. Remission doesn't always come to even the most earnest and faithful and plentiful of prayers. Many of you may be uh, familiar with Nabil Qureshi. He's a convert from Islam to Christ. 
had his MD. He was a medical doctor. After converting to Christ, he became a faithful evangelist and apologist, dedicated his life to the ministry. Pursued theological degrees from Duke and Oxford. Brilliant and faithful, once-in-a-generation mind. 2016, at age 33, he was diagnosed with advanced stomach cancer. I cannot imagine how many faithful Christians were praying for a miracle for Nabil. For the next year, Nabil shared update videos in which he stated multiple times he believed, despite all appearances to the contrary, he truly believed that God would answer those prayers in the affirmative and grant him a miracle. He always held out the possibility that that would not happen. He did not presume on God. And he encouraged people to trust God regardless of the outcome. But he prayed for remission and healing. He hoped for it with confident faith. And he died on September 16, 2017 at age 34. My age. Just days after still expressing hope for a miraculous healing. And people mocked him. Atheists mocked him. Especially Muslims who hated his ministry. They mocked him online. Flooded his YouTube videos with gloating comments after he died. Making fun of him, his wife, his two-year-old daughter they left behind. Hope for remission is not unassailable. But you know what is unassailable? The hope that one day every single person that mocked Nabil will watch as God stitches back his body together from the dust, breathes life back into it, and clothes him with imperishable glory and immortality. And then Jesus will pronounce for all the cosmos to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's unassailable. Paul learned to trust the dead-raising God. That's where his comfort came in affliction. It's the argument from the greater to the lesser, like when Jesus asked concerning the paralytic, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or take up your bed and walk? Both are equally easy to say, but one would have immediate visible proof. Jesus did the more visibly difficult in order to give assurance that he could do the other, that he could really forgive sins. In the same way, which is easier to do, heal a mind from emotional death, from despairing, or breathing life back into a corpse? God did do the more visibly difficult. He does do the more visibly difficult. He literally raised Jesus from the dead as the first of many. And in doing so, in putting that part of himself on display, he gave Paul all that he needed to be protected from hopelessness and despair in all of life's afflictions. God gave Paul resurrection-powered hope, unassailable hope. And that hope is the lens that Paul then interpreted every single act of deliverance that he would later experience or not experience in his life. Paul goes on in verse 10 to look towards the future. He delivered us from such a great death, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So Jesus' past tense defeat of death is the first act in God's grand plan of resurrection, and Paul's deliverance was his despair being removed when he considered the wonder of the resurrection from the dead, the amazing truth of the gospel. Nothing could stop Paul. Nothing could make him truly despair because come whatever, he was going to be raised with Jesus. And Paul says he will deliver us. Paul does not mean he's going to get me out of this or that trial that I find myself in. Paul is not expressing a prosperity confidence that God will always deliver him from any affliction in the sense of removing that affliction. The entire emphasis is on God who raises the dead, not God who gets you out of precarious situations to protect you from death so that you avoid death 
Paul isn't hoping in death avoided. He is hoping in death defeated. He delivered us and will deliver us is a statement that he has removed our hopelessness by putting before us the hope of victory over death. Paul's repetitive in this verse because this is the foundation. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Just as he has granted us to look to him and delivered us from our despair by this hope, so now we know it will come to fruition. We will share in the future resurrection. Paul was delivered from emotional death, that is despair, hopelessness, by being given the hope not of avoiding death, but by giving the hope of real deliverance from physical death because of Jesus. God taught Paul through his afflictions, your hope is not in this life, it is in the next. And that life will be eternal and unsullied by the pains of this world. You guys, God raises the dead. He raised Jesus. And whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. If you believe in him, he will raise you too. So you can endure cancer. You can endure painful relationships. You can endure uncertainty about employment and the future. Every little death in your life that you cannot conquer is a reminder to trust God who conquered actual death. And every little resurrection in your life has to point you to the resurrection from the dead coming when Jesus will wake all his sleeping saints. When I was little, my aunt would bake a lot. She was a prolific baker. And I love brownies. So one day, my aunt could be working hard in the kitchen and telling all the kids, I have a surprise coming for you or whoever was around. Sometimes she would let one of us lick the spoon. Now, if my Aunt Trudy let my younger brother lick the brownie spoon, and then he ran outside and found me and said, Aunt Trudy has a treat for us. I got to lick the brownie spoon. I could understand that in two ways. I could be excited because my brother getting to lick the brownie spoon means brownies are coming. Or I could mistake the spoon for the treat and be bitter that I didn't get to lick the spoon. If my brother misunderstood the spoon as the treat, he could then wander off and not be around for brownies. The spoon was not the treat. The brownies are the treat. The spoon was evidence that the treat was coming. It was a preview. It tasted sort of like the brownies, but it didn't have the warmth and texture. It didn't come with cold vanilla ice cream for an amazing hot and cold combo. If at any point any of the children misunderstood the spoon to be the treat, they would go horribly astray. Not everyone gets to lick the spoon. Bitterness and jealousy could ensue. You could be foolishly satisfied with the spoon. Every little resurrection in all our lives, every rescue, every deliverance from difficult circumstance is a preview of the resurrection from the dead. If we are satisfied with the little resurrections in and of themselves, or if we don't get them in despair, then we will miss out on the real reward. Church family, God raises the dead. Jesus is going to raise us with him. We're going to receive a weight of glory beyond all comparison. All our lives, individually and corporately, have to center on this fundamental truth. So how does Paul's closing exhortation in verse 11 fit with all this? He says in verse 11, You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift of grace granted us through the prayers of many. Remember in verse 1, Paul defined himself by his call to be an apostle, the divine representative spreading the gospel. And in verse 5, he called his sufferings 
Christ's sufferings, the sufferings of Christ, indicating that he suffered those things on behalf of Christ because he was serving Christ. Paul's entire life's purpose was to tell people about the eternal resurrection life in Jesus. God's purpose for Paul's afflictions was so that he could share gospel comfort, as he's doing in these four verses. So when Paul asks for their help in prayer, it is probably best to understand this as he is asking for them to join hands with him in the gospel by praying for him. That includes prayers for specific deliverances, yes, but more broadly it involves prayers for the success of the ministry in general. Right? The key question being, what's the blessing that he has in mind? What is the blessing granted to Paul in answer to these prayers? What does Paul want them to pray for him? Is it for a specific instance of deliverance? Given that Paul doesn't describe himself as presently being in danger, and given the emphasis in context being on his despair, not the situation itself, it's more likely that Paul wants them to pray for the success of his ministry, regardless of how that actually works out in the specifics. Pray for the spread of the message of the grace of God through Christ Jesus. The blessing granted to Paul in verse 11 is both the hope of eternal life and the spreading of that hope to others. Once again, we, we, we have evidence that this is what Paul intends. He returns to this exact same topic in chapter 4. In fact, Paul often uses his openings to kind of set the stage or to preview things that he's going to unpack in more depth later. So listen again to verse 11. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift of grace granted us through the prayers of many. Now listen once more to chapter 4, going here in chapter 4, hear the, the, the notes again. We'll back up so you can hear the entire context. But we have the treasure of the glory of God revealed in Jesus in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. Same idea, trust God, not ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair, as we otherwise would be without gospel hope. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Killed even, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And then he concludes this section. He says, we believe, so also we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence For it is all for your sake, so that as the blessing extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Same flow of thought, same ending. The blessing extending to more and more people to increase thanksgiving. More and more people believing. More and more people receiving the same gospel encouragement. Because in their own trials they learn to trust in the God who raises the dead. Because of Paul's witness. So in verse 11, Paul is inviting the Corinthians to partner with him by praying for the success of his ministry. Often that will involve specific, special, gracious deliverances from trials and dangers. But at the same time, it does not rule out that death could be the result. Like Paul says in Philippians when he's writing this time from prison, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But why do the Corinthians need to help Paul in prayer? It's not that they need to, it's that they get to. 
God glorifies himself by displaying his saving power, and part of how he displays that to many people is that he involves many people in the process of saving. God doesn't need the Corinthians to pray for Paul. God doesn't need Paul. But he invites them all in so that they can get a close-up look at his delivering, his saving, his own evangelistic zeal to save the lost. When you pray for specific evangelistic causes, you're becoming part of that evangelistic story. When we come to a Sunday evening prayer service and pray for the various evangelistic conversations going on in our church, you become a part of that story. You're privileged to be a part of the narrative, part of the chain of events that leads to the glorious outcome. When praying, you're not just a spectator, you are a participant. The more people that pray, the more people that commune with God and talk to Him about specific causes, the more people who are invested in those causes, the more people who will feel genuine, heartfelt praise when they see how God gloriously answers those prayers. So in close this morning, as a church, we need to center our life on the gospel. And we ought to grow in three ways. Just as Paul had to grow, even after being saved, even after... The road to Damascus, he had to learn to rely on God. So we too need to grow in three ways. Growing in knowing, knowing the gospel. We want to grow in our understanding of the truths of who Jesus is, what he did, what our hope is. Understand the gospel. Understand forgiveness from sins. Understand Christ's righteousness gifted to us. Understand the hope of resurrection. We need to grow in our knowledge of that. Grow in our ability, that I'm including under our knowledge, our ability to speak that to each other, to apply that to each other, to constantly point uh, each other back to the gospel. Number two, grow in our sharing. And now I'm thinking not sharing with each other, but sharing outside. Grow in our ability to communicate this gospel, the hope of resurrection, the reality of God who raises the dead to people who are currently dead in their sins. People who are potentially currently despairing over hopelessness in life because apart from Christ, life is hopeless. Grow in our ability, our confidence, our willingness, our boldness to share the gospel hope with outsiders. And thirdly, let's grow in praying, praying about these things, gathering together, joining hands with each other, being taking God up on his invitation to be a part of his saving purposes, to participate so that thanks increases, that God is more glorified. Church, let us rely on God who raises the dead. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for being who you are, and we thank you for the gospel that you have defeated our sin, that therefore you have defeated death. We praise you that you raised Jesus, and we praise you that you will raise all of us. And so I ask that you would help us through all of life's trials to keep that fundamental reality, the center, the foundation, always in view, that you raise the dead. Grant us comfort in the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.